So we're haphazardly in the study of the Ten Commandments, um, which means that I started with something introductory, then Luke jumped into the first commandment, and now I'm jumping back into introduction. So, um, and this won't be the last week of that either. So, so there's a lot to say about uh, the Ten Commandments and what does it mean to know God? What does it mean to try to be good? What is it? How do you sort these things out? And so we won't say everything about it, but I'm going to say more than just one week's worth about it. Uh, last time we talked about it, we talked about the law um, in terms of what it can't do. What the law cannot do for you, which is it can't fix you, it can't make you good. Uh, having the right set of laws that you follow can never uh, change you enough to make you right with God. And so we tried to stress that point. Don't trust the law to make you any better. Um, today I'm going to talk about something that sounds like the inverse of that, which is I want you to take delight in God's law, to love God's law. And um, this isn't my wheelhouse subject, honestly. You know, guilt, forgiveness, guilt, forgiveness, those are the kind of things that I like to talk about a lot. Uh, these are the things I need to talk about more, and probably all of us need to think about more. Um, but it's an odd thing to try to say, I want you to try to be delighted in the law and to love the law. I sort of feel like a, like a school principal saying, hey kids, the rules are really cool. You want to hear the rap I wrote about them? You know, because you're like, you know, it sounds like special pleading to say, hey, I want you to really love the law uh, when the law creates so many problems for us. I mean, maybe the best thing you think you're going to get is, is a, a speech about how um, life goes better if you have laws. You know, having a law about which side of the road to drive on uh, makes life a lot safer and more efficient. If everyone drove on the roads the way they moved their shopping carts in Costco, you know, we would all be dead and mad, right? So um, laws are good. You know, fish are free when they're in the water, and they're not free when they're out of the water. That kind of notion about the law is true, but we're not being asked just to assent to the necessity of law in the psalm that we're going to look at today, which is Psalm 19. I should have mentioned that. We're being asked to love the law, like to instinctively, viscerally love the law, like it's better than money, it's better than honey. Um, I love it, I want it. Not, I realize that it's necessary, but I love it. And how do you get to that kind of situation? Um, what's being told to us in the psalm we're going to look at is that the, the law of God is the best version of the good life that uh, exists. It's the ideal self uh, described in a code who you want to be and know you ought to be, the, the instinct that drives you to make resolutions at the new year, the instinct that makes you want to buy a self-help book at the airport when you're going on a trip and think maybe you know, the new me will arrive by the time we land the plane. You know, that instinct of I know I ought to be the ideal self, but I'm not, uh, that longing for moral beauty, sense that you're made to be something significantly grander than what you are uh, is what the law taps into here. It's saying what you long for there is what's described in the law. Now, the law can't get you there, but 
knowing that is supposed to give us some delight, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, please uh, open our hearts and minds to You, uh, that we might know You uh, through thinking about Your law together. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Hey, read with me, beginning at verse 7 of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. So who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, loving the law, it sounds like loving orthodontry to me. Um, I can't imagine loving orthodontry. I can see that you could think it's necessary at times to get your teeth straight. All right. um, but it's not delightful, uh, the idea of getting braces and having all that they're going to do to you done to you. And you know, the law is... Not delightful either. I mean, orthodontist says, okay, we're going to stick things between your teeth. You know how irritating it is if you get one popcorn kernel between your teeth? We're going to do that to all your teeth for a while. Uh, and then we're going to strap sharp wires into your mouth and yank on them so that your teeth hurt all the time. Uh, we may have to pull some of your teeth out. Um, great. <laughs> Here's a bill for a tremendous amount of money that you're going to pay for us to do this. And the law kind of hits you the same way. You think, oh, well, it contradicts you. It accuses you. Um, it describes an ideal self that is very far from what you are. And you think, if I'm ever going to be anything like that, it's going to be violent and painful uh, and an arduous road of change and transformation for me. And honestly, the more I look at it and the more seriously I take it, the more I realize it's an impossible road. So, yay law. You come at me with accusation and condemnation and tell me what I ought to be like I don't know that. And basically lay out a path in front of me that's too hard for me to travel. Oh boy. Um, but keeping with the orthodontia uh, metaphor, um, the thing the orthodontist gives you that gives you hope in this, that makes it worth the spacers and the bands and the extractions and whatever else. Um, back when I was going through it, they gave me pictures of pretty people with pretty smiles. Now it's all computers, and they can show a pic you a picture of you up front with a pretty smile. This is what you'll look like when your teeth are straight at the end of this awful process. And that is something you can actually take some delight in, where you say, that would be awesome. And maybe in the days when you're going through the pain and your teeth are moving around and you're in a bad mood, you look at the after picture from the orthodontist and you say, that's, that's what I want. Um, that makes this worth it. 
that's something that's beautiful. I'm actually delighted about that. I really want that, uh, even though the process isn't easy. All right? So when we're given God's law, we're given a picture of true humanness. This is the ideal you. This is what you were made to be. Um, this is, if you're a Christian, what you were going to look like eventually. And to look at that, even with the laws and possibility and its accusations and its difficulty and all of the time you have to spend confessing your sin and those kind of things, that picture is held out for us to give us some hope to say, look, Jesus is going to do this in you. This is going to be you. You're going to be truly human in this ideal sense one day. Uh, through this process. And so your imagination steeps in this notion of moral beauty. And as you do that, you delight in the law. You say, yes, that's what I want. That's the picture of me that I hope really will be true one day. That's what I want. And so in that sense, you delight in the law. God's law is the best version of the good life. That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, three short points. One is that uh, the law describes ideal humanness. Two, the law describes God's character in his heart. And three, the law describes the future version of you. So I don't usually help you that much, you outline people, you engineers that like everything orderly. You're welcome. Okay. So first, the law defines true humanness, ideal humanness. You look at this list of things, you know, the law is perfect and sure and right, pure, clean and true. And uh, those whose lives are shaped by it are revived and wise and joyful and enlightened and steadfast and righteous and receive great reward. Um, saying this is the way you ought to be, you want to be, you know, a life of spiritual connection to God, at peace with Him, uh, living under His delighted, loving care, at play in the fields of the Lord, which is actually a negative reference uh, uh, literarily, but in my sermon, it's really nice. At play in the fields of the Lord, right? That idea that you flourish in life at peace with God and that you're a trustworthy and generous friend and that you're someone who lives and is able to love other people free from bigotry and free from selfishness and free from all the things that ruin your relationship now. And this picture is, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want to be. That's delightful to me. Um, and the person that we've seen live in this world with the most beauty and the truest humanness is the one person who's kept this law from beginning to end his whole life, Jesus Christ. Right? And so the picture we have in Jesus' life of what a human being is, is a picture of the law. He's someone who's kept the law. But that notion of flourishing is really not what we usually associate with uh, law-keeping. Right? What do you associate with law-keeping? I think of you know, kind of a regressive ideas about humanness, you know, you've got to rein it in really hard and make sure you don't do anything that's very much fun. Like, you measure piety by the number of pleasures that you forego. Right? That's kind of your notion of law-keeping or some kind of a repressed attitude towards pleasure in the world, timid and joyless. You know, that's someone who's really serious about keeping the law. They're just always afraid that something happy or good might happen, you know. Um, or they're cold and merciless like Javert and Les Mis, you know, someone who the law has turned their heart cold towards other people and made them judgmental. But none of those caricatures, none of those uh, regressive uh, imaginations about law-keeping remind you of Jesus at all. You don't think of Jesus and think he's like Javert, cold and merciless like that. You don't think of him as 
measuring piety by how many pleasures you can forego. You think of him as, as this super large-hearted, generous person who's always moving out towards other people and delighted. And uh, that's the picture we're given of the law. Our imaginations are wrongly shaped by these regressive notions. The law uh, and Jesus' lived expression of the law is the truest kind of humanness. Uh, Second thing, law reveals God's nature to us. It shows us the heart of God when we look at it. H.L. Mencken said the best thing about the Ten Commandments is that there are only ten of them. And uh, he didn't mean it nice. Um, but he could have, right? Because there's part of the beauty of God's law is that it, is, uh, it, re- it forbids so few things, right? And it creates such a generous field in which we can live and delight and show our creativity and enjoy God. Uh, it's a very small set of laws, right? Um, most things are permitted by God's law. Very few things are forbidden. Um, it's like a, the law is like the fence around a beautiful pasture uh, where we're set free just to live and roam and enjoy and delight ourselves as much as we want. But there is a fence. And the grass over by the edge of the fence isn't less delightful than the grass in the middle of the field or anything like that. The whole field is yours. Uh, but there is a fence. right? A fence for your own protection. A fence for... Uh, society to flourish well in the way that we treat each other there is a fence but it's not uh, primarily a negative view of human life it's very expansive because god believe it or not is for you and he loves you and is generous in his law and he made the world for you to enjoy uh, not just as a test for you to try to pass he made the world for you to be delighted in it but what do we think I can't do what God wants me to do because I would be diminished. He's stingy. He's withholding. He doesn't like me. And if I open myself up by obeying Him and doing what He wants, then my life is going to be worse. I know it. I know He's going to cut me off from the only things I even like in my life anymore. I just know He is. right? And so I'm scared of Him, and I don't think He's out for my good. I don't think that's His heart. And this is, a, this is an insulting caricature of God, right? I mean, he's done nothing to earn that reputation. And it's ugly for us to think of him that way, really. I mean, what we're given in the law is God's love language. Now, you know what love languages are? Like uh, married people eventually have to read books about love language. So, you know, you can learn what is it that your spouse really is delighted in. I'm, I'm 31 years in. And I finally figured out that the thing that really makes Julie's heart sing is when I bring her golf memorabilia. And uh, it's changed everything for us now, you know, because I see her eyes light up. And, you know, um, but you'll learn what is your what what do they love? What shows what do they interpret as loving? What delights them? And that's what we're given in God's law. He says, "This is what it looks like to love me. This is what this is what I take delight in." Uh, you want to know me? And have a relationship with me. Look at these things. This is what I. This is what I love. I love generous uh, human beings. I love creative human beings. I love non-selfish human beings. You know, um, I like it when people are are humble and sort of proud. And I like it when people love and connect to me the way that they should, and to each other the way they should. And it's a window into his heart, uh, not a window into his uh, mean, strict, withholding nature, because that is not his nature. Right. Um, what did Jesus say in the upper room? We read in the, in the gospel lesson in John. 
He said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Now, some of you, I know, have Presbyterian consciences. And the first thing you think about is, oh, I know. I know if I say I love him, if I really loved him, I'd keep his commandments. I don't keep his commandments. It's, I'm a sham. I'm a fraud. I don't love him. I know he hates me because I'm always saying I love him, but I don't love him because I'm always sinning. And therefore, I don't love him clearly because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And this is a neuroses. It's probably under Presbyterian in the DSM-5, you know. But, um, <laughs> but let me just say this. I know you can't keep it. I know you haven't kept it. Um, I know you're not going to keep it perfectly in this life. And I'm going to talk about that next week. Okay? Um, But what I want to say is this. Your failure to keep the law and your conflicted conscience because of that is not uh, a rationale for you to leave your imagination stunted about what moral beauty is. Uh, Yes, the law has a lot of sharp edges on it that are a problem for all of us, but it's still beautiful. It still is descriptive of the heart of God, and it still needs to shape our imaginations about what it means to be human and what it means to be in a loving relationship with Him. And uh, we'll talk about the conflicted parts next week. But let me just say this. Um, We have a confession of faith, the Westminster Confession, uh, and and there's a, a question and answer version of it that's called Catechism. And the first question is, what is man's chief end? What are we here for? What's the main purpose God made human beings? And the answer is not uh, to wrestle with our issues over moral guilt. Like the reason God created us wasn't just so that we could live our whole lives wrestling through the issues of moral guilt and forgiveness. He said the chief end of man is that we glorify God and enjoy him forever. What God wants for us is a delighted relationship with him like we were created to have. Uh, where we flourish, uh, where we're at peace with Him and each other, where our human potential is given uh, wild and free expression, and where all the beauty of humanness uh, is expressed morally as well as otherwise. He wants us to enjoy Him and give Him glory that way uh, in our lives. Now, moral problems come in and interrupt that and ruin it and break it and have to be dealt with. And Jesus Christ has come to deal with those issues, the, the ways that we have ruined the peaceful, flourishing world that God made. Um, Jesus has come and dealt with that. But, you know, in the new creation after this life, repenting, uh, asking forgiveness for our sins, confessing our sins, uh, is not going to be a part of our life with God anymore. Um, we're going to live the way we were meant to live with Him. And so in this life, the moral issues matter. Dealing with God, having a sensitive conscience and honesty with God is important to be authentic with Him. But it's not the whole of the Christian experience. The whole of the Christian experience is is that we have been welcomed back into God's family to live lives that delight Him and delight us. And He wants that for us. And if we let our consciences and our worries over guilt... uh, interrupt that so that we never feel his pleasure, never feel his smile, never feel his delight in our lives, then we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. God intends more for us than that. So, I mean, God's law, St. Augustine famously said, you know, here's Christian morality is love God and do what you want to do. Um, If you're loving God, do what you want to do. And, wouldn't you, wouldn't you be satisfied with that uh, as an ethic for your children? 
you know, as they're growing up, like, here are the rules. Love me. Do what you think would delight me. And then knock yourself out whatever you want to do uh, within those parameters. I th- that would probably cover most situations, right? I think um, they might need a little more instruction than that. But God's law is generous to us that way. He wants, it's, it's summarized as love. Love me and love the people who are around you. Um, and that's very beautiful instead of regressive. And it shows us that God's heart is generous. <clears throat> Last thing is, the law describes the future you. For uh, people, if you're a Christian believer, um, then Jesus came to rescue you from your guilt and rebellion against God. But he also came to rescue you to a new life of flourishing in relationship with God. So Jesus' work was not just to alleviate our sin problem with God, but it was to open up a whole new life of relationship with him. Um, You are being restored to the image of God. If you remember the Genesis 1 account of creation of human beings, the glory of human beings is made in the image of God, a reflection of God himself with all of our unique capacities and uh, abilities and beauty. And that image has been warped and corrupted by our rebellion. Jesus said, I've come to fix that in you. I'm going to make you human again. I'm going to renew you in the image of God. That's what the Ephesians 4 text we read said that we're being renewed in the likeness of our Creator. And Jesus, who came, is said to be the perfect likeness of God. He is the image of God, the perfect example of a human being. We're being made like Him. The Bible says when we see Him, we will be like Him because... um, My brain just let me down. Help me, someone. When we see Him, we'll be like Him because... We'll see him as he truly is. Thank you. There's a winner. I, I knew. I just wanted to see if you knew. The, uh, yeah, we'll be like him. Not in his deity. I, I, we won't be supernatural. We won't be gods. But we'll be humans in a way that will make blow your mind. Right? We'll be human in a way we've never understood humanness before. And um, this is our future. And Jesus has said, the work that I started in you, I'm going to finish until I return. That means that no matter how sorry a Christian you are, and I'm sure some of you could contend you know, in the race, no matter how sorry a Christian you are, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, one day there's going to be a perfect you. There's going to be a you that doesn't sin. There's going to be a you that's not selfish or bigoted or envious or uh, irritable or proud. There's going to be a you that's human in a way that you've always dreamed that maybe you could be and beyond that. A future you. And that you is going to be somebody who keeps the law. In the new creation, when we're in a world that's right again and face to face with God and not conflicted with Him anymore, not conflicted with each other, we're going to keep the law of God. Last week I noticed this, and I hadn't noticed it really before, in Luke's sermon text in Isaiah 2, it said in the new creation, when things are set up right again after Jesus returns, that the law will go out from Zion. The law will go out from Zion. Not to accuse and crush us anymore, uh, but to describe moral beauty for us and to give us the paths to run in so that we can flourish. So there's going to be a perfect version of you in the future that keeps the law. And so um, as discouraging as the law can be to us, especially if you're honest, 
as much as you fail in trying to keep the law, you have this picture held out before you, kind of like the orthodontist after picture that says, um, it's going to be good eventually. You can't get there on your own. The law can't make you this pretty. Um, Jesus can make you this pretty, but you're going to be this pretty. And um, so go ahead and let your imagination run in these channels because it's really going to happen. It's not futile, even for you. It's really going to happen. This is a, it's kind of what you do. This is, this is what makes Christian marriage uh, beautiful and better when it's better. Right? That is that two people stand up on their wedding day not thinking, you are perfect, and I will try to hold this picture of you in my mind forever so I can always remember how perfect you are today, and we will ride on the fumes of this awesome day for the rest of our lives if we make it. Hopefully we won't live that long, right? <laughs> Instead of that, Christians stand up and say, all right, um, far as I'm concerned, this is going to be your worst day ever as a spouse. Um, but I know that Jesus loves you and is determined to make you into a perfect version of you that keeps the law. You're going to be the ideal you one day. And Jesus said, I'm going to make that happen to you. And because I know he's made that promise to you, I'm going to invest in the future you. I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to keep this picture on my mirror and in my brain about the, the ideal you that's one day going to be. And on days when nobody else believes that about you, I'm going to believe it about you. And on days when you don't believe it about you, I'm going to believe it about you. And I'm going to advocate for this beautiful, astounding future you every day of my life that I'm married to you until I die. And then one day I'm going to see you like that. And so Christian marriages get better as they go on because you know, the guy actually gets closer to that picture <laughs> you know, eventually. There's, a, there's that forward-looking hope of who someone's going to be rather than a, a, a constant, meticulous adding up of who they are now that makes Christian marriage beautiful. And it makes a relationship with God's law beautiful. Because you say God who's given us the law is the one who has that picture of us in His mind all the time. And you look at yourself as a screw-up that always disappoints Him and always fails Him, and He's got this picture of you of who He's going to make you. He's committed to it, and he doesn't have any doubt that it's going to happen, and he's not giving up on you in the meantime. And that picture of you is the law, and it's beautiful. So the law, instead of coming to beat us down, it comes to us like Gandalf came to Theoden. I'm a real Presbyterian minister because I'm using the Lord of the Rings. And uh, he comes, uh, Theoden the king has been uh, basically possessed by Saruman and, and has... Uh, lovely worm tongue whispering in his ear all the time, right? Do you remember worm tongue, that character? And so Theoden is just, you know, basically, you know, sunk into himself and it feels like he's, you know, 50 years older than he really is and he's lost his will to lead. And Gandalf comes and, and rebukes Saruman and, and worm tongue and he says, Will you hearken to me? He says, Too long have you sat in shadows and trusted to twisted tales and crooked promptings. Now, Lord, look out upon your land and breathe the free air again. And God comes to us with this law, and He's not saying, don't you have any fun or any pleasures. He's saying, I want you to breathe the free air again. Breathe the free air again, not because you're going to keep the law perfectly, but because of the hope of what you can be that's expressed in the law, and because of delight in what you certainly will be 
in Jesus' grace. I'll just pray.